0: Well, it is that time, again, for us to dig into the Word of God, uh, the teaching portion of our uh, worship service, and uh, as we approach that, I uh, have a question, I guess. Um, What do you say to someone who has everything and proud of the fact that he's secured his successful, self-sufficient, and powerful status, even if by unethical means? What do you say to somebody like that? We're talking about evangelism now, and you have an occasion to to speak to somebody who's in this particular position. A person like that can be intimidating to talk to, you know, especially if he doesn't consider you his equal, his peer, someone with a competitive amount of success and self-sufficiency and power of your own. I think there are many ways, of course, to break into his world, even if it's, out of sheer surprise on his part that a person like you can, can be so happy and so confident in life. Well, what do you say? Are you willing to put up with those those kinds of insults and, and maybe degrading comments for Christ's sake? Then this guy might say to you, well, what do you have to be so confident about anyway, so happy about when you have, well, to work for a living, depend on a job and a paycheck coming in every month, and you carry no clout, please, go away, peon, I'm busy. And this is the challenge, isn't it, in evangelism, finding creative and clever ways in to people's lives with the gospel. And Paul was very good at it. He was can. Considered by his opponents, you need to understand, as a weak person. Weak in his appearance, in his presentation, and in his message. And they, and they knew that he had <clears throat> depended on donations for his ministry, and he labored, uh, had a labor job, tent-making business. He also served time in prison. Let's not forget that. Ran out of many towns for his rants not before, of course, being publicly shamed at the whipping post. Yet Paul used his situations to his advantage, to find ways into the lives of the rich, the royals, the Greek philosophers, the the prominent people of the empire. Of course, God had something to do with this, yes, promised that he would both suffer for Christ and stand before the world's best. We know that. That doesn't mean that Paul wouldn't work at it, though, and he did. In fact, we might believe that Paul's efforts were the very means that God ordained to bring him before his audiences. And God will do the same for you. So the issue is really not, will you ever have the ear of someone as important, but what will you say to him or her to lead this person to the gospel when you do? Well, I think Jesus' words in Luke twelve sixteen are appropriate for this particular context, this particular person. Jesus said, one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Did you get that? What a sobering truth. And the guy who hired you to clean his yacht, who wouldn't have a good reason in his mind ever to talk to you if it weren't for the fact that there was a stain on his deck that he didn't want you to miss, definitely believes that his life is the sum total of his possessions. He defines himself by his great wealth. In such a life... Is not without its own unique hassles, but it's nevertheless viewed as an ideal life for under-the-sun dwelling. And after you tell him this, you might follow that up with the fact that life doesn't end here, and all his proud possessions will do him no good when he has to stand before a holy God. Do you see how that works? use the person's lifestyle, his ideology, his philosophy in life, to actually undermine it and then follow it up with a biblical worldview. That is what Ecclesiastes 4, 4 to 16, is all about. And I'm very eager to show you how the sage explains how we're to do this in great detail. Let me give you the the thrust, the summary, and I've, I've gone to the uh, The trouble of publishing this for you, as well as an outline just for ease uh, of flow, the thrust is this, I put it this way, God has designed life according to an above-the-sun worldview that is accentuated all the more by its many cheap substitutes under the sun, such as a covetous life which is unbalanced and uses others. A fiercely independent life, which is materialistic and ignores others, and a power grabbing life that is prideful and abuses others let 's let's let 's take that uh, piece by piece. The first part of this main idea the main idea of this passage is strongly implied not only by our passage but also from the context of the book itself. Of the three chapters that we've already discussed, the implication is that there is an ideal kind of life, an ideal way to live, and God himself ordained it. And we've talked about it many times since we began this expanded evangelistic tract that we're calling Ecclesiastes. It's the God-centered life, the life that has surrendered to God and has received redemption. It's the life that imitates Christ, It's a godly life, a truly spiritual life because its domain is the Holy Spirit. To say it another way, it's the life lived according to the the above-the-sun worldview. And the sage has been highlighting this ideal life against the bleak backdrop of life that is godless, separate from God. The sage continues then to paint more bleak reality, of this life under the sun that cannot be denied by any sane under the sun dweller since what the sage says here comes from common life experiences. The reality is there are many ways to live apart from God that are no more than than popular substitutes for godliness. We examine them now and we see how they help to accentuate the more godly life, accentuate more rather, the godly life. So let's let's look at them one by one. The first one, the first substitute for God's way under the sun is a covetous life which uses people to get ahead. That's in verses 4 to 6. The sage now identifies a lifestyle characterized by covetousness, a person that is jealous of others who are successful and wants what they want. Most likely, the sage is talking, of course, about high-powered financial elites, since they're the most aggressive at this and in positions where they can outdo their, uh, their successful competition. But make no mistake, you, uh, envy is not unique to them. The have-nots can be just as motivated by envy as the haves to outdo and stay ahead of their neighbors. As you might expect, the sage condemns this way of life as being a waste of life, uh, nothing more than a chasing after the wind. So let's get a better idea of that. First, jealousy motivates this life. That's verse four. He says, I, I saw all the labor and, and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. That was his experience. The envious person determines to best his competition at all costs, even if it means taking advantage of those less successful than he. In fact, one commentator put it uh, rather cleverly. He said, quote, in order to get ahead of those above you, you have to stand on the heads of those below you, End quote. That's right. Second, the envious life produces no lasting satisfaction at all none whatsoever. There will always be someone ahead of you or threatens your status, which drives you constantly to keep at it. The pursuit mentioned here is ongoing. Third, the lifestyle is an an extreme way to live and no better than its opposite, which is complacency and laziness. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. What a figure, the lazy person does nothing, of course, to help himself and literally eats himself away. And this is not the solution, of course, to covetousness. Someone that couldn't care less about getting ahead and prides himself on being lazy is just as extreme and will languish in his poverty. Now, whether a person aggressively lives to best the best and stay ahead and or eats himself away, both are extreme Destructive ways to live. Fourth and finally, this lifestyle is not a balanced life. It's not a balanced life. He gets proverbial here. He said, Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. God designed life to be balanced. As the proverb implies, a covetous life is an unbalanced one that is the result, of course, of the fall. And according to an above-the-sun worldview, life is not lived to one extreme or the other, but in balance. The sage mentioned this before when he called labor and the enjoyment of his of the fruits a gift of God. You remember back in chapter three? The balanced life neither covets its neighbor nor takes advantage of people to get ahead of life. Rather, it's industrious, it enjoys the fruits of its labor, and it works with others, not against them. God created Adam, a social being, to work with others for God's glory on earth. So you're getting a taste of, of this kind of life and how the sage begins to to undermine it. Here's another substitute for God's way under the sun. It is a fiercely independent life that is materialistic and ignores others. That's in verses 7 to 12. This substitute lifestyle is equally futile. The sage says in verse 7, again, I I saw futility under the sun. And it's this fiercely independent lifestyle that just Uh, that is just as popular as the covetous lifestyle, it characterizes a great percentage of people who live under the sun. It's the kind of life that Satan presented Adam and Eve with in the garden, a life where they could become their own gods and have no need for the one true God, or others for that matter. But those who think this way soon slam into all kinds of irreconcilable difficulties, as will See in a moment. But first off, first off, let's understand who we mean by the fiercely independent. All right? The fiercely independent. We're talking about the loner, the master of his life, the god of his world, the sovereign determiner of his own destiny, or so he thinks. He needs no one. He is the proverbial island, or the sage tells us in verse 8 that he is without a companion, without even a son or a brother. So he has no spouse. You know marriage, of course, is the covenant of companionship that God instituted as the norm for human beings, specifically because it was not good to be alone. Also with no spouse, this person has no heir and consequently no one to pass his name and his wealth onto at the end of his life. The only thing about this life that's more pathetic is that he still works and struggles as if he did have those things. Well, let's read on. His eyes are still not content with riches. So the the loner is a driven person with an insatiable thirst for material possessions. And there seems to be no end to his struggle for them. Not surprisingly, the, the sage states in verse 8 that this loner's lifestyle is miserable. It's a miserable way to exist. And the loner has that sense as well. To some degree, we catch him from time to time, hear him ask himself out loud or think to himself out loud, Who am I struggling for and, and what am I depriving myself of good things for? That's what he says. But he quickly dismisses it and carries on. He's a guy who works his fingers to the bone to accumulate as much wealth as possible and deprives himself of its fruits so as not to waste any of it. And also, he keeps it away from anyone else so that they wouldn't enjoy it either by not producing an heir. Everything about this lifestyle, the sage says, is futile. Excessive toil. No one to share it with, no one to leave it to, and no plans to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Sage's description of the loner's lifestyle should convince any sane person that, is, that, that it is a cheap substitute for the life lived in fellowship with others, a life that sees, according to verse 9, that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. In a fellowshipping context, people cooperate. They benefit themselves and each other when they do that. For example, verse 10, If either one falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Or verse 11, If two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? The simplicity and the logic of the sages' arguments are faultless. Listen to verse 12. If someone overpowers the person, two can resist him. So no sane person in this world can logically refute these examples. They're obvious. But then there's this this proverb at the end of verse 12 to emphasize the superlative context of fellowship against, against being at odds with others. He says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's been applied to a list of different situations. Marriage heads that list, right? A strong marriage has the Lord as it's at the center. So a husband and a wife grow toward each other. They grow closer to the Lord. He's at the center of it. That's three. He's the third party in the union. Others have used this proverb to argue that the best situation to be in for any Christian, is the one where the Christian has someone to disciple and someone to mentor him. So he's right in the middle. So you've these, got these three that make this chord, right? And I, I think these applications are safe. Uh, I think they're, they're reliable. But I don't think we're meant to restrict the proverb only to groups of three, you understand. It's more a general statement about the unity of fellowship. And in our context, it points, it points us away from the loner lifestyle and to a community, specifically the community of believers that we call the body of Christ. The sage would have called it the, the, the Israel, God's chosen or elect people. This is with God at the center, rallying around his word. That's the ideal. This is the superlative community, the best there is. And it's held together by a common bond in Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it has organic unity. It's, 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 uh, it's held together by common godly interest, being of the same mind, And also considering the interests of others in the community is more important than yourself. A love for God and neighbor. A common purpose which is to please Christ here in this body and to grow up into Christ its head. Paul says in Ephesians 4. Now obviously those under the sun who are separated from God do not enjoy the ideal life that is lived in fellowship with God's people. They don't. But before I go on to talk about the last substitute, I think it's important that maybe I digress just for a moment to mention where many churches in American Christianity actually have missed this truth and even supported the independent way of life. What do I mean? I have three examples. Let me see if I can rehearse them with you. In a, in a quick fashion here as time is getting on. The first example I don't think needs much attention at all. It is, it is the example of those who claim to be Christians and are not members of a local church. And I don't mean because they're in between churches or that they're looking for churches. I mean people who claim to be Christians who have no use for membership of the local church. Now that is that's an argument... Uh, for membership in the local church, but, but, but people say that they are members of the universal body of Christ, so they don't need to be members of any local church, which misses the point entirely of being a member of the universal body of Christ. If you're a member of the universal body of Christ, then you manifest that with membership in a local body. That's why Paul would call Corinth the church of God in Corinth, or Galatia the church of God in Galatia. You see what I mean? All right, well, the writer to the Hebrews is rather pointed on this matter, too. Do not forsake the assembling, as some are in the habit of doing, but build up one another. So I would suggest to you that you cannot build up anybody without first knowing them well, which would necessitate a commitment to them and a local body. Here's a second example, though. This is a little bit more involved. It's the Christian who is a a member of a local church, for sure, but who has no use for fellowshipping in the body. There are people like this. This is the lone wolf Christian. And I remember throughout my pastorate, many Christians that eventually became members and grew in their faith within a span of a couple of years A whole new world opened up to them, and they were very excited. And inevitably, some would start searching the Internet to expand their theological interests and wound up discovering a number of of worthy, well-known preachers to listen to. John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Jim Boyce, and many others. And there is, of course, nothing wrong with listening to sermons by others outside one's local church, so long as they're sound. Our church promoted many of these men. We even invited them to speak at our conferences, and we displayed their publications. The problem is that some of these eager members gravitated to one particular Bible teacher and became an ardent disciple. And they couldn't get enough of their hero in the faith. They would attend his conferences, buy all his books, listen to his sermons, visit his ministry website. They devoted hours to this. And the danger soon became apparent. They started putting more stock in what their particular hero of the faith had to say than in what we said, their local church, what we taught. And they spent less of their free time practicing their spiritual gifts in the body and more time alone in their bedroom listening to their favorite heroes. They were not involved in any one-anothering activity. Few of, uh, few, in few uh, occasions when they did show up, it was to pass out books and tapes of their favorite in order to promote him. And they became experts on whatever few topics their heroes emphasized and developed a very narrow view of the faith. I called it tunnel vision back then, where they would understand the entire faith through this one aspect of the faith that their heroes developed. They also measured me and my preaching against their hero and would criticize my content. Well, you don't emphasize this or that like he does, or the style of my preaching. Well, you don't sound like him either. He's passionate. How come you're not passionate? They worship their heroes. To the point where if you happen not to be as excited as they about their hero, well, they would be personally offended and stop talking to you. What you need to understand about this small percentage of people that I dealt with is that they eventually had no use for the local church. They were content just to sit in the confines of their bedroom and worship a man. Not surprisingly, some left the church over this issue, and their leaving was no doubt precipitated by our confrontation. You cannot get away with that kind of lifestyle very long in this church. And that leads me to say that the Bible does not sanction lone wolves out there. Not one bit. People who want to live a Christian life need to realize that they are part of a body, that faith is not private but very public, and that the only way to express that through their membership is is in healthy participation. Jesus gave clear, uh, clear instructions as to what a church looks like. There's submission to elders. There's one anothering. Members practice their gifts accountability, and even church discipline for people who are unrepentant. In addition to this, Paul dealt with this issue of hero worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, seeing it as a cause of rivalry in the body. He urged in his letter, all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction." Now Christians have their favorites I have mine After all these are God's gifts to the body of Christ at large for our edification But let's not forget the importance of submission to local church For example if if you're new to the faith and you happen to hear one of your favorite preachers promote infant baptism then you need to chase that topic up with us in order to find out why we don't teach infant baptism at PRBC. That's very important. And do it long before you become convinced of infant baptism. The third and final example I'll give is widespread among the evangelical church in America, and it's very dangerous. It's the fact that the biblical community has been redefined by many churches to be something that it is not. Now, the word community has long since been a buzzword in American Christianity. It's been stripped of its doctrinal essence uh, of fellowship, of one anothering, and redefined in a way that actually protects the fierce independence that the sage talks about. Can you imagine? Really? Yes. How so? Well, churches advertise that it's all about community all the time. Maybe you've heard this. They say, well... We're a place where you can, where you can have friends and, and have close relationships where no one will judge you. You can be who you are and we'll respect that. It's a place that minds its own business. So we won't be asking you about your behavior and any particular views on life. It's a safe place, a place where you can, you can come to be stroked and praised it's a place that puts no restrictions on you, no accountability, no church discipline, not even membership where you're called to submit to local elders. No, oh no, none of that. This is a happy, happy place. Well, I can tell you for sure that whatever, whatever else this place is, it is no church. Nor is there any biblical community there. Uh, What I have described just now, which are real quotes, by the way, from various church adverts, is a satanic counterfeit that really promotes fierce individuality. Think about it. It's a place where you can be independent. You can be your own person. No one will interfere or question you. That's modern church community. But the New Testament says... Something very different. Be of one mind and of the same purpose. Paul told the Corinthians in Thessalonica, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. In Second Thessalonians 3, Paul says, now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Jesus gave the church church discipline. If anyone sins, rebuke him. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. Hmm. Then there are the numerous one-anothering commands, like love one another, That particular one, by the way, does not mean love people the way they want you to love them, but the way God wants you to love them. Big difference. Which is exactly why we chase up with members who display actions that are not in keeping, either with their confession or with their sanctification. Beloved, this is why churches in America that do it right, as a rule, are not big. And why many out there that are big, with few exceptions, are nothing more than social clubs. We come to our last substitute then for God's way under the sun, and it is the power grabbing life which is prideful and abuses others. The example that the sage gives to explain this, it's in verses 13 to 16, is a royal lifestyle. And that's because, as we noted, the first time kings came up with regard to hedonism, royals have it all, right? They have fame and power and authority, material possessions and wealth, the ability to do whatever they want. They are the best text case in this context for those in positions of authority and power over us. So the king is the epitome of this. But to us... In our world, anyone who has authority over us fits the bill, all right? Especially if that person is wealthy and powerful and can do pretty much whatever he or she wants. Do you know people like this? They range anywhere from the president down to the local government and even to those who have their own business and have several employees under them. The sage tells us something of this power, powerful life that has sway over the masses that can bribe law enforcement, has influence over politicians. This life is believed to be ideal under the sun. Why? Well, I have what I want, I do what I want, and I get what I want. But it's really nothing more than a cheap substitute for the -the above-the-sun lifestyle for many reasons, not the least of which is that it doesn't last. And that is the point here. It's fleeting and disappointing. The sage's example is a sad story of an old king that has become foolish and outlived his usefulness. He's not like that, that young, humble, wise king. It's obvious from verse 13, which is the better choice of the people, right? Better, the sage says, is a poor but wise, wise youth than a, an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. And verse 14 tells us that this is true because the young upstart, well, his background makes him the better choice. Notice, because he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. Oh, a rags-to-riches theme. I get it. This young man grew up in the same town that he now leads, so he knows the people, and also from very humble beginnings, in fact, he served time. Wow, a reformed individual who now champions good in his life, even better. He can relate to the commoner. Now, Joseph comes to my mind, right? Joseph. Sold into slavery, cast into prison, finally released, and eventually becomes the second most important person, powerful person in Egypt. And we cannot tie, obviously, a historical figure to verse 14, but the story of Joseph assures us of this. It can happen, right? It can happen. The rags to riches theme helps make the point that the young king, who is one of the common folks, is humble. He has humble beginnings, and he will be wise in the way he leads his subjects. He listens to them. He takes any criticism seriously. He makes changes where necessary, and all in the best interest of those under his care. Okay, so young, humble, wise kings are better than old ones who no longer listen to their people. Okay, what of it? Well, Here's the not-so-obvious twist. The grammar and the context of this text show that these two individuals are really one and the same. Ah, yes, that's right. The young buck, whom everyone knew as the rebellious teen and rose up out of the ashes of prison life only to win the people's loyalty and submission, is the younger version of the now-aged king who has become obvious to, uh, oblivious to the needs of the people in his dotage. How did this happen? Hmm. How does he go from caring to uncaring, from selfless to selfish in a span of his career? Pride, that's how. Pride is like that wild animal God told Cain was at his door wanting to devour and consume him, but he must master it. Remember in Genesis chapter 4. At some point in the king's tenure, his power and authority went to his head, and he starts making power grabs. He loses interest of the people's needs and even uses them for political gain. I think we know about this. What becomes of such kings who start well and turn bad after years of acclaim? they lose their following, and eventually they're replaced by someone who is younger, humbler, and wiser. Look at verse 15. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. Hmm. And if, it's not bad, if that's not bad enough, if it's not bad enough that a good king can easily become ba- a bad one over time when his power goes to his head, Verse 16 tells us and emphasizes the futility of power grabs. Eventually, rogue authorities fall out of popularity with their constituency. Make no mistake about that. He says, there is no limit to all the people who will be be before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This, too, is futile and a pursuit after the wind. You see, after long hours in the office battling the numerous complaints from people. There is the fickle nature of the younger generation who have no tolerance for yesterday's kings. That's it. You're gone. Remember, the sage presents this power-grabbing life as nothing more than a weak substitute for the life that is lived in harmony with others. The implication is specifically of seasoned Mature leaders who remember their humble beginnings and shepherd their followers rather than abuse them. King David comes to mind right away. Despite his grievous sins, he remains the quintessential king of Israel because he was a king after God's own heart. I love this phrase. God was the object of his affections. And he was obedient to God's will for his life and his reign. In fact, Paul explained this Explained it this way, too, in Acts 13, verse 22. God raised up David as their king and testified about him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out my will. The above the son life abuses none of its relationships, beloved. It lives in harmony with people. Even unbelievers, Paul says, live as much as it is possible for you to do so in peace with all men. True worshipers of God who live a God-centered life love God with all their heart, soul, mind, as Moses explained in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It's significant, by the way, that God gives this command in Deuteronomy 6. Listen very carefully. In a context of parenting, where parents raise children, You see, parenting is very much a leadership leadership position, one that is God-given, with God-given authority and power that children are to submit to. And in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, God tells parents, you shall teach them diligently to your children, that is the commands, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. What a great way to parent. Use their life as a classroom to show them their hearts. And to keep that powerful position of shepherding from going to any parent's head, God prefaces his command to them in verse 6, with with verse 6 rather, which gives us the prerequisite to godly parenting. Here it is. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. That's the prerequisite to good parenting, to being a good king, to being a good leader, you see the parallel between parenting shepherd parents shepherding kids and David shepherding israel not Not only did both have to shepherd God's way with God's word, but it was the imperative that both have a love relationship with God and obey his word in their own lives first. A shepherd will gain no trust. Or be worthy of his position if he does not embrace the very truth with which he shepherds his people. Well, we come to the conclusion now, as our time is almost gone. We have three dominant lifestyles that characterize people under the sun. They are covetousness, the loner, and the power grabber. And as popular as all these three are in our culture, we need to reason with each one of them when we encounter him or her, when we encounter this lifestyle, and explain that it's really just a cheap substitute for the way life is supposed to be, the way God has intended life to be from the very beginning. And don't miss the common denominator in all three, which will help us with our starting point in a conversation with them. It's the belief that life enjoyed most when one is motivated by pride to be selfish, individualistic, and to hoard as much material wealth as possible. In a word, greedy. Now, of course, people ensconced in any of these lifestyles would not admit to that. They'll make these lifestyles sound virtuous. They make greed sound virtuous but there is no redefining the truth away oh no life lived apart from god in pursuit of any of these three ways is pure greed we can confirm this with this morning's scripture reading from luke 12 we heard verses 15 to 21 read there jesus gives this parable about about a man who is characterized by this greedy way of life under the sun a successful businessman in the grain industry with a space problem more surplus than he could handle what a great problem but his solution was not to be charitable with it or to care for the interest of others with it to meet the needs of the needy he wasn't like the The members of the early church in Acts 2, somewhere in verses 42 and and so on, where they sold off their property to meet the needs of the members. You have to remember, this is a greedy man. Jesus highlights this fact when he describes this man talking to himself. He says, then I'll say to myself, well, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. Instead, he builds bigger barns to hoard his wealth so that he alone could enjoy the ease of life that it would bring and celebrate his financial independence and power and status. And it's noteworthy that at the hour of his untimely death, which he could not control, God calls him a fool because he would not be able to enjoy all that he so selfishly hoarded for his own pleasure, not where he was going. Jesus follows God's response up with this explanation in verse 21. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is meant Oh, what does it mean to be rich toward God? It means to love God and to live with him at the center of your life. It means to operate by his above the sun approach to life that cannot be substituted for anything else that the depraved human heart can ever create a self it's a selfless humble god orientated people orientated life and whether or not it has any material wealth to give it always has something of greater worth and gain to give. It is the gospel. It is the words of eternal life. What we must endeavor to convince our under-the-sun dwellers, beloved, who live apart from a holy God that is, e- that, is that eternal life is great gain. And it is worth forsaking any materialistic, independent, or power-grabbing lifestyle for. And our warning is also the same as Jesus' warning. We say to them, watch out, be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not the abundance of his possessions. It is instead... a life that is lived in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God and the benefit of his church. Father, we thank you for this time together and for this portion of Ecclesiastes written so long ago, but by your sovereign uh, goodness has been preserved down through the centuries that it might wind up in our hands that we might understand and see that the gospel is pre- was preached even then, and how important it is that we continue to preach it even now. Lord, we pray for boldness, that we will not hesitate nor shrink uh, at the task of carrying such important words, <laughs> words of eternal life, uh, to those in our circles of life let us be reminded especially in these very uncertain and troubling times that you have not given us a spirit of timidity we are more than conquerors so we pray that we would do right by our god and that we would uh, we would spread his good reputation around that people may see him they may come to know him that you would be pleased to grant them repentance and that they would praise you with their whole soul and mind and strength as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.